Welcome to The Road Back to You. Looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Ian Cron. And I'm Suzanne Stabile. And we are glad that you're here. everyone. Welcome to The Road Back to You. We're delighted that you are here, and I'm, as always, delighted that my friend Suzanne Stabile is here. Suze? Yeah, I'm here in Music Town. How's it going? It's going really good. Really good. It is. Did I ever tell you what my favorite movie is? No. What is it? My favorite movie is To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, did you like that movie? Yeah. Okay. So... The you know Gregory Peck plays Atticus Finch, right? And uh, he is this wonderful small town lawyer um, who has a is reliable, conscientious, single dad. You know, uh, raising kids, impeccably dressed, a great community citizen minded reformer. Um, first time I saw it was I was in seventh grade. And I remember thinking to myself, that is the dad I always wanted. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, like just, and he was so sensitive and yet principled, you know, like he, he, he was principled and a sensitive and thoughtful person, measured. And present. And, and present. present. And, um, I, you know, years later, got the Enneagram and it became very clear to me, Atticus Finch was a one on the Enneagram. Right. And we got a one on the program today and she's a pal of yours, so I'm going to let you take it from here. All right. Well, you know, I, I uh, as I told you when we were planning on having Ramsey on our podcast, I think she might be the only person I know who's listened to every one of our podcasts. So she's kind of geared up and ready. And she um, works with my husband, Joe, and we both um, are very fond of her. So let me tell you a little bit about her, and then we'll start talking to her. She is an associate pastor at Highland Park United Methodist Church in Dallas, and you know, there are 17,000 members there. So we got a few folks that need pastoring. And as part of her pastoral role, Ramsey leads a weekly worship service for the special needs community called The Feast. Prior to entering seminary, Ramsey practiced law in Dallas for five years. And the really good stuff is she's married to David, and they have a son, Noah, who's two and a half. And they have a dog, Sounder. And they have two cats, Nevin and Jonah, and they have a fish, Francis. <laughs> oh, I like that. Francis. Yeah. I'm a yeah. Francis fan if it was St. Francis, but I'm So I'm meet my it. friend Ramsey. Hey Ramsey. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for being willing to be on the podcast with us. I'm real excited about today. Cause there are so I'm many I'm real excited too. Oh, I'm so glad. There are things about you that I like. A lot, and there are uh, things that you do that I respect so very much. So let's Thanks, start Suzanne. with um, what you like about being a one, and what's troubling for you about being a one. Um. Well, uh, I was in denial about being a one. So I guess I'm going to start uh, with what is troubling to me. It's basically everything. I, I hate when I. Uh, sat through uh, your Know Your Number workshop, Suzanne, which if anyone, if if you haven't, anyone listening has not sat through one of Suzanne's Know Your Number workshops, it's an absolute must. Um, and 
I was stuck because all I could hear when you're presenting about one was, this is my mother. I mean, this explains so much, right? And then I didn't know what I was. And then that night I was praying about it and I realized I'm a one. And, um, so I, uh, it explained for me why I always had a critical voice and I didn't realize not everyone has a critical voice in their head all the time. Um, but I guess what I like about being a one, I hate the fact that I'm black and I can be tend to be black and white. I really don't like the fact that I'm a perfectionist. But what I do like about being a one is um, having a sense of responsibility um, that I do seek try to seek justice in my life and in the world. Um, and that I... Um, one of the things that you said in your workshop, Suzanne, about a one is, is that we, and I highlighted it, is, well, now I'm, I'm forgetting it. So, so I'll I jump in so when much. I yeah. remember it. Yeah. So I want to pick up on the fact that you were talking about not wanting to be your number. Mm-hmm. And I so can see that. And I, I, I say this sometimes, and sometimes I choose not to because I, don't want to be hurtful, but I believe the number that it would be the hardest to be on the Enneagram is a one. What do you think about that, Ian? Um, I think that's so. I do. Um, I, I think the the work for ones and nines mm-hmm. is is hard. Uh, I think nines may be as difficult as ones, actually. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. So um, Ramsey has a unique opportunity at our church in that she uh, worships with a special needs congregation every week. And I am so anxious for us to talk with her about that because we've not had anybody on our podcast for whom that's their professional responsibility nor uh, anyone who's talked about that very much. Mm. But it seems to me, and Ramsey, this is for you to teach us about, it seems to me that... um, Planning worship, worshiping with a special needs community, doing all the other things that you do in relationship to that ministry at our church would be a transformative experience for your oneness. Is that true? So, that, you know, that's a, it's a tricky question. I think, I think the opportunity just to gather with a community and rejoice in the Lord every week, a community that is normally marginalized, not fully included. That's transformative for me in the sense that I'm reminded of the beauty of God's kingdom and of God's grace. Um, So I, I do think it's transformative. For me, I just feel like I'm so humbled and blessed to even be a part of this worshiping community. Um, I know I'm being transformed as a result of it, but it's hard for me to um, see it. You know, and so I'm I'm such a hard self critic. I almost don't feel worthy to be a part of what I'm a part of. You know, Rams, you're kind of hitting on what the reason I think one of the reasons I think it's hard to be a one. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'd like to do actually is ask you, as I've asked others. Rather than me just saying what the Enneagram says, what a one is, can you, we know that they're called the reformers or the perfectionists. Mm-hmm. If you had to describe the features of a one to folks, coming right from your mouth would be a lot better than coming from mine. What is a one? Um, a one is someone who who tries really, really hard all the time. I want 
to be perfect. Um, I feel kind of a moral obligation to God to be perfect. I feel an obligation to my parents, to my friends, to my colleagues to do the right thing all the time. Um, as I've gotten older, I've softened a lot in, in the sense of seeing right and wrong, but um, I see there's a right way and a wrong way. It's been hard for me to break that thinking, primarily because I was raised in that thinking. Um, I have a re- I have a constant critic inside my head that is um, not positive criticism, right, or constructive criticism, but negative, always that I could do better, I could try harder. Um, so uh, those would be the things that, that stick out to me. I, it's, um, I, I, I find sometimes being a one, particularly when I'm kind of going to the unhealthy side of one, can be exhausting because mm. I'm just trapped in trying to do really good, trying to do well, at the same time hearing this critic saying you're not doing good enough, you're not doing well, that kind of thing. So, um, but when I'm on the healthy side of one, um, then, it, then, then things change. So, um, I think just to tie up a bow here, um, you've described beautifully what I think is hard about being a one. Uh-huh. I think nines are on the other end of the spectrum. I think you're, you're, those parts of your personality that, you know, are, are most vexing for you, you're so alert to them. You're, you're, you're very vigilant. And nines, it's hard to do their work because they're asleep to them. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's a like mm-hmm. there there's a there's a sort of I don't want anyone to hear this as negative, but it, the the word would be torpor. You know, like a stuperish sort of nine. Yeah. You know, I'm just asleep to that. I'm the fact that I'm asleep. Right. And you're hyper vigilant. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're right. you're so attuned to what's wrong. The nines are just kind of spacing through it. You you, you the first thing you see is the crack in the ceiling, and it's right. the, the nine doesn't even know there's a ceiling. Right. If they're not right. in a healthy space, so that that's what kind of what I meant when. Uh, it's so interesting that you're talking about that because I've been watching Ramsey and Joe work together for seven, eight months, and um, you know I try so hard all the time to give Joe the message that his presence matters as a nine, and I'm crazy in love with him. So there's that, and then I compliment him on things that he does. But what I'm aware of is that when he brings home compliments from Ramsey. He he he's got he puts those on the shelf. It's like that counts. <laughs> mm. That counts because ones don't just hand them out. That's right. They don't, and right. and they're generally uh, very specific. They, as I understand it, and, and Ramsey confirmed this for me, ones really appreciate it when when someone compliments them that it, that it's not just a general compliment, but one that's very that's specific. This is what I yes. felt you did. Is that is that true? Yes, I think so, because I think because we're hard on ourselves, unless it's a specific compliment, at least I kind of write it off. Well, yeah, you know, and so it, and so yes, I agree. But, you know, for me as moving into a man, first of all, let me say it's easy to compliment Joe because he's worthy of lots of compliments. But I have found in a managerial role that I've really had to strive to, to compliment people because that does not come naturally to me. Um, you know, I think in y'all's book, you talk about how ones, or maybe Suzanne, you did, I know for sure in your workshop, you talk about ones being critical as a way of being loving, criticizing mm-hmm. to be loving. And I think it, it's been hard. It's been challenging for me to um, have to kind of compliment as opposed to critique as a way of loving and encouraging and moving people down a path. So, Ramsey, I want to do something risky, and, and, and I don't want to offend anybody who listens. So if this needs cleaning up, I want you to clean it up for me because I think it's such an important thing to talk about. 
So I'm going to launch okay. into it. Nobody knows what's coming. And and then I, if, if I've spoken in a way that would be disrespectful or hurtful to the community that you worship with, then please help me fix that. Okay. Um, Joe and I, you know, went to New York for Valentine's Day. And so um, we saved up for the trip and had miles and hotel time. So we were going to use our money for show tickets. And we saw three shows, which is would be very expensive. We were able to get them for half price or less. So the first night we went to see Cirque du Soleil Paramore, which was unendingly entertaining and perfect in so many ways and required such great timing and all of that. And I was in awe. Mm-hmm. And the second night we went to see Cats, and we had very good seats, and the cats interacted with me quite a bit because I was on the aisle. <laughs> And I was in awe. And the third night we went to see Sally Field in Glass Menagerie. And I was in awe. And then we went home and had one night. And then the next night, uh, one of the musicians at our church gave Joe and I tickets for a cabaret. um, And the cast was from the Turtle Creek Corral, who are extraordinarily talented men. And I was in awe. And the next night, we went to see the Jesters. And for our audience, the Jesters are uh, special needs people in our community, 16 and older, who put on a play every year. And they start working on it, as I understand it, in September. And then they put on the play in February. Right. And it's original production, just so those who are listening who don't know it. They they work, um, these older teens and adults work with professional directors and musicians and choreographers to actually write their own musical production, everything from the script to the songs. So uh, if you remember back in September, we were coming out of a time in Dallas where policemen had been shot and our whole community was in shock. And so uh, the Jesters decided to do this year's production around superheroes. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you guys, Cirque du Soleil was great, as was Cats, as was Sally Field and Glass Menagerie and the Turtle Creek Corral was fantastic. And if the jesters were still on the stage, I would still be in my chair. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Now, here's the thing that I want to say that I'm, I'm afraid will come out wrong and I don't want it to. And that is, when I go to Cirque du Soleil, I expect perfection. Mm. I expect it to be perfect because they're on Broadway and it's a big deal. And Sally Field's been an actress for all this time and I expected her to be everything that she was. And I expected the jesters to entertain me, but I didn't expect them to embrace me. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. I I just didn't expect that. And I was the—actually, there were more people watching the jesters than any of the other events that we saw, except Cirque du Soleil. Um, So I'm I'm in this packed auditorium at our church that seats a 1,000, and there are lots of people there. Do you think there's a way for us to learn in all of our numbers— and, and I, I keep believing that it has affected you and that you work with them. That if we could change our expectations so that we were open to being surprised, that more of life would be a gift for us. Does that make Absolutely. sense? Absolutely. Yes. And I think also just being open to the joy that's in the moment, 
right? I mean, when those actors and actresses are on stage, it's just pure joy. They, it's just pure, they're, they're in the moment, they have this opportunity and they're shining. And I, I wonder if we spent more time having perspective over what's important in life versus what isn't. And, and, and being joyful just in the moment, glorifying God in the moment, I think things would be a lot differently in, in just in our lives and in the world. That's astonishing. Mm. That's astonishing. And so uh, as a one, your orientation to time is the present moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that helps us. But Ian, your orientation to time is the past. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. So where are you in the, in the moment joy and understanding of what's happening as a four that goes to one in stress? Yeah. Um, actually, we saw it on a podcast with Alanita Andrews. Uh, for those of you who didn't hear it, I encourage you to, uh, but Nita read a poem. I'm a four, the, the, known as the romantic or the individualists. Uh, I'm highly attuned and responsive to aesthetics and artistic beauty. And so in that moment, I don't even know there's time. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, 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 like you all could be in time doing, but you're like in that matrix moment where everyone's just floating in the air. Right. And I'm just zeroed in on, on that, right? So that moment is perfectly present to me. And when I'm unhealthy, you know, I start to go into the what if and, you know, dwelling on my alcoholic father and what would have happened if I'd gone to that college instead of that college. But one of the things I, I do, right, when I'm healthy, when I'm doing okay, is I go to one, right? right? Where, where I'm not fantasizing about all the, the, you know, writing Marcel Proust's, you know, you know thing remembrance past, you know, I'm, I'm getting stuff done, you know, and I love that about once. And so, Ramsey, when you go to four in stress, what happens to you in that move? Um, a lot of um, I, I, inner critic, obviously, the voice is, is high. And I think kind of what Ian was saying, the what ifs or, or looking back on the shouldn't have done that, should have done this this way, that was a mistake, that kind of thing. So backward looking, thinking with my inner critic. What uh, do you wish people knew about ones? That we're trying the best we can. I think, um, you know, I, I keep talking about the inner critic, and I'm sorry if it's uh, repetitive to the listeners, but that's one thing that was so liberating to me about finding out that I was a one, was this that I, that I don't have to listen to these voices. Because for so long, not only did I um, think that everyone had the kind of this critic in their head, but I thought that the critic was a help to me, right? That would, and so... Um, I think that it's so liberating to, to be able to um, to call it what it is and say, I don't have to listen to you. But I think that what people need to realize with ones is is we're, we, we're well-intentioned. Our right versus wrong, black versus white thinking is well-intentioned. It's it's just the way, the way we are. And while I think sometimes it can seem harsh or preachy, we don't mean it that way. I think we do love people and that's our way of loving is through <laughs> through kind of saying, well, this is right and this is wrong. Right. While not helpful in every situation, it's just the way we perceive things. So this is a highly, th- you know, spe- you know, this question may, I don't know where this one's going, but one of the things I think, I, one of the things what I ask different numbers is, you know, these are d- adaptive strategies, you know, these are ways of being in the world that, that uh, kept us safe and guarded and get, they were strategies for getting our needs met. But I think all, every single number, if you said to them, what would you have to feel? 
if you let this go? Like, what what feeling would you that you've been maybe you know running from, and that's part of the strategy here? Would you have to feel if you had to give up the being a perfectionist or a romantic or a helper? Like, what what would come up? Like, what would come up for you? Do you think, Ramsey? That I really am completely loved and perfect in my imperfection. Mm. That I really and truly am loved and good. Wow. And I, there is, uh, you know, I talk a lot, and you do too, about the Enneagram being deceptively simple. And that's such a beautiful, simple answer that's so difficult to achieve even for a moment, to feel loved for a moment even. Mm -hmm. So, Ramsey, how does oneness play out in your marriage and in your parenting? Um, Okay, so uh, oneness made my marriage at first very, very difficult because my way was the right way on everything, and my husband's way was the wrong way on everything unless he agreed with me. Um, Fortunately, through God's grace, I have softened and— and and it, it's it's better now. I do think that my initiative, though, as a one, complements my husband and I well. Um, but at first, it it was um, difficult to realize that there are more than one ways to do things. In terms of parenting, it's funny. I think that I am so sensitive to to uh, my kind of black and white thinking, that tendency to go in that direction, that I've almost gone the counter opposite of that. Like consciously, I'm trying to not not raise my son so strictly in terms of you know right ways to do things or to, ways to look at it. But I'm constantly keeping myself in check about is this a, a, a legit rule that is helpful to him, or am I just making a rule for the sake of making it? Mm. So can I uh, ask a, a personal question? Feel free, obviously, to. Um, Pass, but I'm curious to know what what your husband's number is, if that's okay. Well, I, he's either a nine or a six. He claims he's not any number, and <laughs> we've been through this over and over again. I mean, the lot of nine resident. I see a lot of nine in him. I also see some six, but probably more nine than six. So I want you to know something that stuns me all the time. Uh. I looked at Suzanne. I, I said, "Do you know?" I kind of mouthed to her here. I said, "Is her husband a nine? Because <laughs> because every almost I don't know what it is. I see more nine one comb. I mean, I have theories, but I see more nine one partners than just about any. You know what I mean? Like that's so common. It is common. Yeah. Well, it- Ramsey, why do you think that is? It balances out well. Well, I mean, it's great from my perspective because it's like we kind of do the things I want to do. And I'm not, my husband is a very strong man. I I don't mean to make him sound like a pushover. He's a a very um, strong man. But I mean, he kind of just goes with the flow, which is great for me because as a one, I'm like, this is what we need to be doing. This is, you know, and um, so it makes it, uh, and, and he balances me in a way too, I think. He softens me. Yes. Which is helpful. So I bet we never get to ask this question again that I'm about to ask. Uh-oh. It's late in the day here, Ram, just so you know. And you know, <laughs> you know, with Suzanne, if it gets late in the day, there's it's kind of like, you tricky. know, I got I put a helmet on. It's tricky. Right around 3:30. So here's the question. <laughs> What's the difference uh, and what in what your oneness offers you as a pastor and what your oneness offered you as an attorney? As an attorney, I think my, 
my oneness can, I, let me, let me tell you, can I say this? I think spiritual, as a pastor, I have to rely more on my two wing. Okay. Or, or I do. Um, I go, that side seems to come out of me more. I think as a pastor in a leadership role, my one side has helped me because I'm, I'm real, um, ground, um, based in rational thought. And sometimes in the church, you need to counter some of the emotional things with that. Um, as, as an attorney, I think that, um, my oneness in terms of the, the, the perfection is wanting to have perfect legal documents, perfect briefs, that sort of thing was very helpful. I will say one thing that's interesting though, um, talk, thinking about like Atticus Finch and, and, and in no way would I ever compare myself to Atticus Finch. Let me make that clear. But you know, he, that whole idea of him seeking justice. I, when I was, uh, interviewing for a job as an attorney, I had worked for a big firm and was going to go do something different. And the person who was interviewing me said, do you want to change the world or do you want to make money? And immediately in my mind, I'm thinking I'm, I'm practicing law to change the world. But before I could answer, he said, if you're here to change the world, I don't want you. I only want you if you're in this to make money. Wow. And so it was really interesting then seeing how a healthy one mindset really does move this idea of, of, to going to justice and, and making the world a better place. So that didn't answer your question at all, Suzanne, but just some random thoughts. No, they were great. You know, um, we don't like to, you know, type people from afar, but we can't help it, actually. We all do, right, at some level. But I suspect, based on what I've read of her and what I've seen of her work uh, and what she recently did uh, at an awards ceremony, I think Meryl Streep is a one. It's interesting. Mm. Uh, Her preparation, her poise, uh, her sense of humor, um, and that sense of justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, you know, that the speech that she gave at the, I'm not sure what, Golden Globes maybe uh, award was extraordinary. I mean, I felt it was, and it wasn't, you know, I'm not making a political, but she just stood up and, and, and said what was what. And that reminds me of when right. Atticus Finch says, you know, what's that line about the conscience? He said, you know, basically a man has to live with himself and, uh, uh, the, to the effect of, you know, conscience trumps, you know, everything. You know, a man's got to right. live by his conscience or a woman has to live by her conscience. And, well, and for ones, it has everything to do with integrity. That's right. It's like that's what ones are striving for mm-hmm. is integrity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is a lovely word because integritas means wholeness. Yeah. Yeah. What I was going to say, going back to, you know, your question about my opportunity to lead a worship service with the special needs community each week and how that trans has transformative, you know, for me, that's such a justice issue is not my personal transformation, but rather including the marginalized in all that we do. I mean, I I think that God providentially led me to, to work with this community, not because I had any experience whatsoever with special needs, but because I feel such a strong call to those in the margins. And I think that as people, as a, as a church, we're called to incorporate and include those on the margins, whether they be in prison, whether they be poor, whether they have special needs. But I think for me, the feast is such a, is such a, um, a justice issue. Mm. I love the, I love the name, the feast. 
Um, Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so I'll, here's a question for you. Um, you know, we one friend of mine, actually, who Suzanne knows as well, says, you know, I'm a one, and uh, it took me a long time to, you know, she describes herself as someone who, um, she says, well, there's my way and the wrong way. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and so I think, I want to know, how did you get past that? Because, you know, that's like deceit for a three. It's like, how do you get out of that loop? Because the loop actually reinforces, you know, like, I just want to know what interrupted that circuit for you. I think probably my husband. Um, he has balanced me so much. Uh, I, and so I think that, that, and then I really think moving into ministry and realizing so much of life is gray and, and so much, we're all just, you know, enveloped by grace and dependent on grace. And, and so, um, I think those things have really, really worked to soften, to soften me. And I think, um, I grew up Catholic. I love the Catholic church, but then became a United Methodist. And I do think that being a Catholic, um, for me, just for, in my experience, um, enhanced my oneness in a way, not in a healthy way, or really played to my oneness. And so I think being in a different faith setting, has helped uh, round me, smooth me out too. Okay, I, Sue's just pointed at me, so th- I'm not hogging right now. Uh, but I, actually, I'm kind of sitting on the edge of my chair. So I'm a four, and I went to Catholic school for years uh, in the 19, you know, 60s and 70s. So you know, it, mm-hmm. it was a weird time for the Catholic Church, right? Uh, and with in a very one environment. And you know, fours have a vo- have voices too, but they're not as I don't think they're as um, as clear. But mm-hmm. now you just explained something to me about why I have, I think, oftentimes a vague sort of a ghost like you know, it's like secondhand smoke. Yes. If you if you go up around somebody who's a smoker, you get a little bit of smoke. And I grew up in a very one school setting, and I just picked it up in the air. I think I just got secondhand, but as a four, right. It makes sense that I would then go to the low side of one a lot of the time, which I do. As you know, as a writer, I'll go to this place where I get stuck on a comma for 10 hours. Right, or days. Or days, and hate myself the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know, frustrated and like, ugh. Um, that really helped me, Ramsey. Thank you. One of the things no, that— well, it, you're, Go ahead, Ramsey. No, I mean, I just—I think that I've—you know, I was talking to my spiritual director recently, and I said, I've spent so much of my life in shouldville, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of I should do this, I should do—and I really think that while well-intentioned, it was my Catholic upbringing that, you know, you should do this, you can't do this, that really um, reinforced it as someone who's already vulnerable to that line of thinking. It just kind of made it Mm -hmm. more so. So are you a one with a one mother who went to Catholic— church yes. and got oneness there. So you got, Shudville was a pretty big town. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was surrounded by oneness. I think my father's a one too. Oh, wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you don't have a critical mm-hmm. voice. You got a critical chorus. <laughs> just, but I love my parents. Missing. They're awesome. Well, oh, sure. Yeah, of course sure. they are. Sure. You know, we all got the chorus of our parents in our heads. We you all know? do. We yeah. all do for yeah. sure. What, yeah. One of the things that I uh, want to ask now especially sitting next to a priest who's been an Episcopal priest and a UCC pastor and a what a, a therapist. Psychotherapist. <laughs> yes, you know that. So many things. Author, writer. Yeah. yeah. Vocationally confused. Okay, so but but here's the thing I want to ask. How 
Did oneness get in the way when you were 20? And how does oneness get in the way now? Hmm. Um, oneness, my oneness almost paralyzed me when I was 20 in the sense that I really had extreme disordered eating. Um, I was just so, such a perfectionist when it came to school and college. Um, it was all, it was almost asphyxiating to me. I was in a very unhealthy one state. Now that I've moved, I, I think hopefully healthier to me, it, it, um, it becomes more of an energizing number as opposed to one that is, a, a, that tends to strangle. So mm-hmm. I became so paralyzed by the voice, by, by my own, by my own expectations and things like that, that I've really now been able to, I think, move to the fullness of the number as opposed to the unhealthy side. Wow. That's so good. Yeah, I think for were you asking me that question too? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, um, how vulnerable you want me to be? Totally. Oh boy. Okay. I um, at twenty was a very self-loathing young man, uh, and I had a very, very active critical voice. I see. I just one of the reasons I'm asking is because I I know from your story that you were in stress almost all the time at twenty. Oh, yeah, and before. <laughs> yes, and so I know yeah. that you were living out of the excess of fourness and oneness, which is why I'm asking the question of the two of you. Yeah, it, it was actually very difficult to have a full, to be a four with a very active one thing going on, you know, because you're, you know, it's on a continuum, it's fluid back and forth. But I just had a critical voice in my head that would not stop. And it, it wasn't about spotting mistakes, or it was um, about, also, that that voice that the, it was the never enough, never enough, never enough, and it mm-hmm. wasn't just never enough. I'm not a good musician, or this or that. That was true too, but it was fundamentally never enough. At your at your very core, you are ontologically incapable of you know what I mean. Even mm-hmm. getting back to ground zero to to start getting better like everybody, you know. So it was a very hard season, and I I did a lot of things to quiet those voices that I you know, that I, that w- were very unhealthy for me in terms of, you know, it's interesting, right? Ones, maybe this was, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm speculating here, but you know, ones have that trap door. A lot of ones have a trap door, mm-hmm. which is if you tamp down that anger long enough, right? That shadow side, it's just a fact. You can't keep it down forever. And so sometimes ones will have a hidden uh, or, you know, furtive behavior, right? That nobody else knows about right. where they can let the darkness out and, you know, let the, all that stuff up, you know, the shadow side. Maybe that's what partly was happening for me. I don't know, but 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 I needed to do something to quiet those voices. And so the most efficient, effective way to do that was by, you know, drinking and drugs. I mean, that that was my my way out, you know? I have a new opportunity, as both of you know, I think, to work in the recovery community. And I'm going to do four events with three other professionals in uh, the next 18 months. And one of my assignments is to try to figure out which steps are easiest for which numbers and which steps are hardest for each numbers. And one of the things that I am aware of in one four space, whether it's one and four, four and one, or ones and fours, one of the things I'm aware of is that you are always, always criticizing whatever you've just put out there. It's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. it is, it's followed by your critique of yourself. Or I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Uh, yes. Yeah. 
sorry I wasn't good enough. I'm sorry I didn't get it right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Which all has to do with shame. Yes, it does. So I would love to listen to the two of you talk about shame. Oh, boy. <laughs> now you're yeah, how about, long do you have? Yeah, and not only that, but now, you want to also hear about why I went became a therapist? Is that what you're, that's not what you're really, and, and a priest for that matter? I can, yeah, you just hit it. I mean, why don't you go first, Ramsey? You're our guest. No, I mean, I'm just laughing. I have a book on my desk called that my spiritual director recommended to me called like God's Healing of Our Shame or something. So I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just think that, um, I was not, but I, I feel that I was raised, um, not intentionally when my parents listened to this, but in a shaming environment, I was raised in a church that had a tendency to go that way. And, and I, with a natural in, in, um, tendency to shame myself. I mean, it just, you just become, you know, shame is just, shame is just part of my everyday thought process, really. Yeah. I, um, I said on a, a recent podcast, I'll say it again because it's worth repeating for those who didn't hear it. There's two books by a friend of Suzanne's and mine. His name is Dr. Kurt Thompson. One is The Anatomy of the Soul. The other one is called The Soul of Shame. And uh, he's a lovely human being who's done a lot of work around this in a very deep way as a psychiatrist. And uh, I, I believe that love is the most powerful force in the universe, but I think it's neck and neck with shame. I think shame is maybe an inch or two behind, actually, in terms of its influence on the human life. You know, we think shame of uh, as being just kind of like a periodic, you know, moments, right, that happen to us when we feel exposed, right? Shame's all about exposure, right? It's it's about mm -hmm. the fear of being revealed, found out, uh, seeing the flaw that all of us carry, the wound, the the, the singular wound that that each of us carries, and. Um, I think that, think about, just think for a moment. The first thing you do when you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror and you think, oh, I'm 10 pounds overweight. Mm -hmm. And then you go downstairs and, you know, if you were to just to, to be able to step back and observe how often shame is at the wheel of your car, mm -hmm. it's amazing. It's mm -hmm. amazing. And we just, it just goes by us like it's like nothing. But actually, it's, we're swimming in it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, as a person of faith from the Christian tradition, that uh, one of the things I love about our tradition, you know, uh, is that it can provide this theology of grace that can begin to rewind the momentum of mm -hmm. shame. It can also, at the same time, be weaponized mm -hmm. and turned into a force for creating shame, right? So it's got that, you know, curse and blessing side. Uh, I would say that my a lot of my life uh, has been dedicated to dealing with my shame. A lot of it. Do you have a response to that, Ramsey? No, I mean, I just I, I would agree to all that, and I think that you know, um, part of becoming a minister, um, while certainly I felt a de definite call from God, I mean, so much of my my internal work is accepting God's grace and God's love to counteract that shame. Yeah. Now I have a question for you on that that would help me. Mm -hmm. Because I I actually think in some ways, and, you know, being called to something, to ministry, for example, you know, we all have, you know, mixed reasons for the choices we make. Some are good and some, they're, but it's speckled. <laughs> it's a modeled mm -hmm. call. And I've oftentimes, maybe in my more cynical but honest moments, said to myself, you know, that you, went, you became a priest to compensate for 
those feelings of shame. You know, like you felt right. like you had something to clean up in the world. You had to compensate for your presence here by by becoming a priest, and maybe that would clean you finally, or you know, become a therapist and help your way out of your. Sh- but I'm just telling you, it is such a powerful hidden. It's like a it's like a shadow government in everybody's head. It's yeah. calling it's calling so many more shots than we could ever imagine. Um, I, there's a lot of work for all of us to do around shame. And I think, by the way, if you said to me, I, I want to ask you this about too, is what would I have to feel if I let down all of my foreness and all I had was Ian? Just as like, what would have to, what, what feeling would have to come between the fall of that and the emergence of the real Ian? Uh, would be uh, grief, would always be one, I think, for every number, but it would be rage. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, it would be the. It, it, it would have to be my anger, uh, because I think, like most fours, what I'm feeling in the moment is actually cover the pain I'm feeling right now as a four. Not in this moment, but when I'm feeling that, is actually covering the real pain I don't want to deal with. Mm, that's very interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, mm-hmm. and that pain is is rage. That's underneath the shame. I, I, I took too much time on me. I'm a four. Ram, uh, sorry, Ramsey. Susie, you got you got you want to jump right in on that. I want to talk a minute about my realization listening to the two of you. Because when you, as a one or a four, commit to a direction that you're going to go, you go with it. Mm-hmm. Right? You've thought it out. You have a plan. And you execute. Right. I spend my life adapting. Mm. So if I have a plan and it starts to waffle a little, or or a way in this context I would talk about it, if shame starts to sort of seep in a little bit, that I'm not doing it well or it's not going well, I just change the plan. Interesting. I just adapt. That is interesting. I adapt in real time to give you what you want as opposed to what I had planned to avoid. The real. The real feeling that's underneath that. So what I would have to feel is, I don't know, but I would have to stop avoiding what I am picking up in the room. Mm. Hmm. Wow. This has been a really, I mean, a really enlightening conversation. And it's great to be on the phone with any number that's integrated and healthy. Right. Um, but I'm really grateful today that we have had a, an integrated and healthy one on the phone who's been able to help me understand dimensions of, of my foreignness. We're connected. Right. You know, right, Rams? We're connected on that Enneagram. We kind of understand each other and in, in, in from, you know, different perspectives. And I'm just very grateful to you and for Suzanne uh, introducing us. Well, thank you all so much for having me on. This has been a real treat and a real um, privilege. So thank you. I loved having you with us here and I'll be home tomorrow and maybe see you this weekend. And I, I, um, I, I have all kinds of ideas, guys. About, oh, no. Oh, dear. Yeah, I do. About shows we could do that have connecting lines on the Enneagram, because the reality is this conversation in some ways happened because four goes to two in stress and two goes to four in security, and one has, uh, one goes to four in stress, and four goes to, no. No, What what did you just say? Well, I did two and four. Oh. So the one four piece, Mm -hmm. right, where uh, four goes to one in stress and... No, insecurity. And one, one goes, to, goes four. to four in stress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's All late that. in the day here. We've been doing this a while. Two days. We've been doing this for two days. Yeah. And I got up yesterday at four. Let's, <laughs> let's not leave that out. I haven't said that yet this afternoon. 
<laughs> but, but what I'm saying is we had a different conversation because we all share a line on the Enneagram. Mm. And I, I think that we will find that to unfold in a fascinating way in future podcasts. Mm. So, Ramsey, thanks so much. Thank you all so much. Y'all take care. All right, Thank you, you. Find my husband and give him a hug for me. I will. I will. Okay. Bye. Okay. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to The Road Back to You, looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram. Produced by Jim Chapey and engineered by Brad Bass. Our theme music is provided by the band Waterdeep from their album Moment, written by Lori Chaffer. Ian, we're about to do some events together. We're going to your great state, the Lone Star State of Texas. Nothing like it. Austin, Texas. Love that town. That's on May 12 and 13 at Westover Church. And Suze, you're doing another event in Dallas. First Methodist Dallas downtown. We're doing a big Know Your Number event. Listen to me, y'all. If you haven't been to see Suze do a Know Your Number event, you're missing something that's like better than the Rolling Stones. You need to be there. And my guess is the Rolling Stones are going to be with you in New York, Mm. most likely, April 21st and 22nd, same time, uh, at Trinity Grace Tribeca. That's right. I can't wait for that. I love Tribeca. I love Austin. And Ian, where can they find out all the details about where we're going to be? They can find them at our website, theroadbacktoyou.com. And be sure to join us next time. It's going to be a good one, so come on back. <laughs>